Shadow Talk. Welcome to Shadow Talk, Digital Shadows' analysis of the latest cybersecurity news. In today's episode, Back from the Dead, the Lazarus Group re-emerges from its slumber on a set of new campaigns. At the Winter Olympics, North Korea, China and Russia were all blamed for attacks during the opening ceremony. The search for the Holy Grail proves fruitful as $170 million are stolen from the BitGrail exchange. And finally, we brief you on two newly discovered Outlook vulnerabilities. All this and more on this week's Shadow Talk. Joining me this week, we've got Rose Bernard. Rose, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Excellent, thank you. And back again, we've got Sam Pullen. Sam, how's your week been? Oh, I'm good, Rafa. How are you? Very good, thank you. All right, let's kick things off. So this week, Digital Shadows reported on two campaigns related to the Lazarus Group. A financially motivated campaign called How About, targeting Bitcoin users, and then the development of two Trojan variants called Hard Rain and Bad Call. Sam, you've been following these stories, but first off, for listeners who may not be familiar with the group, who exactly is the Lazarus Group? That's a great question, uh, and one that's worthy of a whole podcast, really, all to itself. But Lazarus are a group that would be referred to within the cybersecurity industry as an advanced persistent threat group, or an APT. And what makes them interesting is that they've been around for a really long time, since 2007. So in, in cyber terms, that's pretty huge. And uh, they've also been associated with some of the biggest cyber crimes uh, that have ever really been reported. And uh, these have included the attack on you know, Sony Entertainment Pictures in 2014, and also the Bangladeshi bank heist, uh, which saw $81 million get stolen. So what's also notable within this is that prior to 2016, the Lazarus Group was pretty much only associated with espionage activity, um, which due to this activity closely aligning with North Korean geopolitical interests led nearly all independent researchers to assess that some level of cooperation between the group and the North Korean state existed. However, and this is a big however, attacks attributed to the group in recent years have taken on a different and purely financial dimension, uh, marking a distinct evolution in the group's activity. So they still carried on you know, engaging in espionage-led campaigns, but they've also started engaging in operations that appear to be just motivated by financial theft. And uh, you know, a consequence of this has led some to argue that the group now operates in subunits, so one being directly dedicated to the development of espionage tools and applying them generally to North Korean geopolitical interests, and another, dubbed by some uh, to be called Blunaroth, as being purely financially motivated. So because of this, you know, at DS we've constructed, uh, we've conducted, you know, structured analysis, and we have what we believe are two, you know, realistic hypotheses as to the group's identity or genetic makeup. And uh, the first is that the Lazarus Group is, uh, you know, a North Korean state entity, likely part of the Korean People's Army, or the KPA, and uh, that the financially motivated operations with which the group has been linked were conducted in order to obtain funds uh, for use by the North Korean government. And the second hypothesis is that the Lazarus Group is an organised criminal group based outside of North Korea, but with connections to the North Korean state via relationship with foreign service elements of the KPA, and that this group is tasked to perform operations on behalf of the North Korean state by a case officer, but also operates for private profit. That's a really great overview, Sam. So what exactly has happened this week? We've had two different updates. 
Yeah, so this week a financially motivated campaign called How Bao was attributed to the group, uh, as well as the development of two Trojan malware variants, which were given the names of, you just you know previously said, Hard Rain and Bad Call uh, by the US security agencies. So, uh, so first of all, How Bao, um, we'll talk about that a little bit. And this campaign targeted Bitcoin users and looked to steal sensitive information regarding transactional activity. And the campaign appears to have been active between April and October 2017, and it distributed emails purporting to be job recruitment adverts for a large multinational bank located in Hong Kong. Now, uh, these emails contained a malicious document hosted on a Dropbox account, which, if opened, attempted to convince the victim to enable macros. As you can probably imagine, if this was enabled, the malware could then launch itself, and uh, it reportedly scanned for Bitcoin activity. Now, this is activity that we've actually previously attributed to the Lazarus group. However, this in the How Bao campaign, uh, the malware also installed a secondary implant implant for long-term data gathering. And uh, really, that's the long and short of the How Bao campaign. But looking at it, I think it's important to take a step back and say, what's the so what here? Or as we like to say, the bottom line up front. And I'll say that it's this. And I don't think that the group is looking to steal money from a few Bitcoin wallets. Uh, I think previous reporting history has indicated that when the Lazarus group goes for it, financially, they go for it in a, in a big way. And I'd say from what we've seen here that the group, or the Lazarus group, is attempting to gain a foothold in the cryptocurrency environment, and in particular, uh, in and around the cryptocurrency exchange markets. Um, and I'm, you know, I'd go out on a limb here and predict that the group will launch a high-profile attack on a cryptocurrency exchange within the next three to six months. Big claims by Sam there, we'll hold him to those. And what about Hard Rain and Bad Call? What can you tell us about those? Sure, so uh, Hard Rain and Bad Call uh, were two Trojan malware variants, and I really recommend reading the US uh, technical breakdown of these, because it's quite granular, but uh, for a high level overview, uh, both variants could install remote access Trojans, or RATs, on Android devices as well as force infected Windows systems to act as proxy servers, uh, disguising their command and control communications to appear as if they, uh, you know, they were encrypted TLS or SSL sessions. And this really fits with previous activity attributed to the group, who largely use hijacked infrastructure to carry out their crimes. Um, by doing this, it makes their activity harder to identify and sinkhole by law enforcement. Um, and it also provides further evidence of the group targeting Android devices, uh, and this sort of activity was first reported in around November last year. So it shows that the group has continued to focus on this area and develop those tools. So how does all this new reporting fit in with our previous assessments? Has it changed? Is it consistent? What's happened there? Yeah, I'd really say that this, you know, this new reporting fits with what we've previously reported. Uh, you know, whilst I definitely feel that you know, researchers should be cautious attributing crimes immediately to the Lazarus group as a whole, and I know that attribution is something that we're going to really dig into later in the podcast. Now, I'd say that this, you know, this recent activity indicates that the group is still very much financially motivated um, and uh, you know, that they're still looking for that big score and that it's also still in the process of developing its own toolkits. You know, and that's something that's really labour and cost intensive. So I'd say that it's reasonably plausible to say that the money stolen by the group is at some level reinvested back into it. Uh, which, you know, if they really did steal 81 million in the Bangladeshi bank heist, that's quite a lot to reinvest. 
Um, but really, that both subgroups within uh, the Lazarus group, if, if that is accurate, that they're both at the moment very much fully functional. Right, great. Thanks for that, Sam. So staying in that area of the world, it's time for our customary update on the Winter Olympics. Rose, the opening ceremony garnered more attention than it probably would have wanted, with Wi-Fi services in the stadium and press office being suspended. Can you tell us exactly what went on? Yeah, absolutely. So after the opening ceremony, there were reports of certain disruptions to broadcasts, and these involved outages of Wi-Fi services in both the stadium and the press centre. And the website itself, the official website, was taken offline for a period of time. Subsequently, the Olympic officials came out and said that they themselves had taken the website offline as a way to protect their internal systems. But there had been a cyber incident. And do we know who was behind this attack? Well, we don't know who was behind the attack. We do know what the malware they used was. So there is a piece of malware that has been dubbed the Olympic Destroyer, which officially wins the title for my favourite malware name ever, um, that was allegedly involved in these attacks. And the malware itself is actually a pretty nifty piece of kit. And you can go online and look at some of the really technical analysis of it, but I would just like to draw out three points which I think are the most interesting. So the first is that it's a binary malware that uses credentials hard-coded into it to move through the systems. And actually, it was linked to a breach of Atos some time ago, and Atos are the service provider, the IT service provider for the Olympics. But as well as using those hard-coded credentials, whenever it infects a new machine, it picks up credentials that it finds and uses them again. So it kind of adapts itself as it moves along. It's also interesting that it actually pulls its punches. So it goes along and it deletes backup files, it destroys anything that's kind of related to recovery data, but actually what we're getting is reports of people saying that it's not that hard to reboot a system with just that data gone. So it actually hasn't realized its full potential. And then the final thing, which I think is really, really interesting, is that it was literally created just to screw around in systems. It's not data exfiltration. It's not there for espionage purposes. It is just there to disrupt and destroy. It's the anarchist malware. It's the pièges of prudence of malware. Well, that's all well and good. I mean, you talk about this being a sophisticated piece of malware, but let's be honest here, Rose. It was a bit of a damp squib, this attack, wasn't it? Well, yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> um, and there are a couple of there are a couple of things that we could say about that. And the first is that we've only heard about those reported consequences. So actually there might be more consequences that we are as yet unaware of. And the second is it could have been caught by the Olympic officials. So one of the theories that we've posited in our reporting is that the, uh, the Wi-Fi outages might have been them attempting to protect their systems. So this is probably a good time for us to slalom through the minefield that is attribution. I mean, we've seen China, North Korea, Russia, all these different countries independently blamed for this attack. Rose, why is attribution so difficult in our industry? 
Well, you're right, particularly in this incident, that we have seen people saying that it's North Korea, it's Russia, it's China. And while I would love to read, I mean, if anyone out there wants to create an Avengers-style fan fiction with these three countries teaming up and taking on the Olympics, I would absolutely read that. Uh, but it's unlikely to be that simple because we use a variety of different tools to attribute an attack. Um, in a nation-state attack like this, you're very unlikely to get a piece of malware waving a flag like the athletes at the opening ceremonies do. And so we rely on analysis of the actual malware itself. And in this case, there are similarities to the TTPs that were used in Bad Rabbit and Not Petya, which have been linked to the Russian state. But there's also similarities to malware and to code used by Chinese APT groups. We also look at geopolitical tensions and who has cause, I guess, or who believes they have cause to conduct such attacks. And it's all a kind of guessing game to work up to the most plausible threat actor. And then at the same time, we have to remember that we ourselves are not without bias. So, for example, I don't know if you've seen the news today or yesterday, but the US and the UK have just come out and formally attributed NotPetya to Russia. And now, as far as I'm aware, nothing has changed since the assessment of US law enforcement in early January of Ukraine um, in 2017. So we have to ask ourselves, why are they doing this? Why are they attributing this now? There are all of these different factors come into play. Yeah, I think that's. I think you make some really, really interesting points there, and um, and I just build on it really from from uh, you know an APT perspective as well. Uh, so if you're thinking about Lazarus, uh, you know, a lot of cyber attacks get attributed to Lazarus, and again, I think we always, we do have to you know approach it with a with a fair degree of caution um, as a group you know they've been active since 2007 and they've uh, they've clearly developed a, a really wide and you know yeah a really wide array of tools uh, so what often that has meant is that you know maybe mutexes or samples of code from previous attacks that have been attributed to them if they emerge in newer campaigns that has often led to the you know the the wider sort of security landscape to point the finger at Lazarus and really I think maybe that might be jumping the gun a bit because what that could mean is that it could be a previous member of the organization who's now acting solo um, you know or yeah, it could mean a whole multitude of things it could even be someone who has sourced that from from a previous attack and has reused it. From what you've said the question really is is attribution even useful at all? Yes it can be to a certain extent, understanding the motivations of a threat actor and potentially understanding other TTPs that they might use would assist you in mitigating the effects of an attack and even mitigating against future attacks. But we have to understand that there are also consequences and we don't live in an unconnected world. And when we, as security researchers or as nation states attribute attacks to other countries there may be retaliatory attacks there may be other consequences for that
Okay, moving on. So our next story is on BitGrail, a cryptocurrency exchange. So it was reported that $170 million worth of nano tokens were lost. Sam, can you give us a very brief rundown of exactly what happened here? Yeah, sure. So uh, <clears throat> so on the 9th of February, uh, the, uh, the BitGrail cryptocurrency exchange reported that unauthorized transactions targeting the nano token, uh, which was formerly Ryblock, cryptocurrency uh, saw 17 million of the tokens stolen and that's the equivalent of 170 million US dollars so it's uh, it's a you know pretty big attack uh, but however there's there's more to the story than meets the eye so prior to this disclosure uh, you know BitGrail suspended all withdrawals and deposits of uh, nano of well nano tokens as well as the list and crypto forecast tokens as well um, and they also introduced a number of other measures, which included identity verification and anti-money laundering protocols, uh, as well as the possibility of blocking non-European users, which essentially they made the platform a lot more harder to use. And that led at the time to a lot of independent you know, researchers and critics to uh, accuse BitGrail of preparing for a possible exit scam. So, of course, in the aftermath of this huge loss of currency, that has uh, led to those accusations kind of you know, gathering pace as well. So, um, but really where it kind of builds on that is there's now been quite a, you know, a well-publicised dispute between, um, between BitGrail and the developers of nano tokens. And essentially, to cut a long story short, both have laid the blame of this loss uh, directly at the other's door. And um, in, because there is, of course, you know, as we've discussed previously, a lack of regulation in this space, uh, again, it's really the investors in these cryptocurrencies who have been left holding the bag. So on that, so this is a perfect example of why so many people are championing regulation for cryptocurrencies. I'd argue it's, it's not that clear cut. I think there are a lot of positives and advantages of in, uh, introducing regulation. But what would regulation in this instance, what would it look like? How would it have solved an issue like this? So largely the regulation that has been proposed or is being spoken about by governments is anti-money laundering regulations. And so they would look very similar to the checks that banks conduct at the moment to prevent people using accounts to move criminal finances through them or to launder money. We don't know specifically what regulations regarding cryptocurrency would look like because it is such an unexplored space, but I would imagine it requires some degree of de-anonymization around accounts. Yeah, and I think in this instance, because we're talking about a cryptocurrency exchange, I think what some people are are looking for is more oversight over these type of organisations that handle this amount of cryptocurrency mm -hmm. and deal with so many different accounts and users and just as Sam said who's responsible in this situation I think that's the thing people want people want to know who's going to be held to account if something goes wrong if you place this much trust in an organization and something like this happens where almost 200 million dollars is stolen someone the blame needs to fall with someone and they need to then pay out to the people that they've let down and I think that's where the calls for regulation play into this and our final story from the week relates to a set of vulnerabilities affecting Microsoft Outlook. Rose, can you give us a brief rundown of what's happened? Absolutely. We have two new vulnerabilities this week, CVE 2018-0852 and CVE 2018-0850. 
um, that are targeting Microsoft Outlook. Now, the reason that we've chosen these vulnerabilities to talk about specifically is because of the ubiquity of Outlook. We all use it, right, at work or at home. It's something that's, well, ev yeah, it's everywhere. And the first one, so 0852, is interesting because it needs to trick a victim into opening something in the preview pane. The second, so 0850 is a privilege escalation floor that uses SMB from a local or remote server, and it can then take place without any user interaction at all. So it, it, they're both quite serious vulnerabilities on quite a ubiquitous product. We haven't seen any examples of them being leveraged in the wild, but the keyword there is yet. You know, it would not surprise me. And have Microsoft released any patches or updates for these vulnerabilities? Yes, they have. Um, they released them in their February update. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody, from Microsoft. Uh, but I can't speak to how well they patch the system or whether they solve all of the problems. Okay, it's coming up to the end of the show. As we do every week, we're gonna get a few takeaways from each of our guests. Sam, why don't you kick us off? Sure, so this week, just like last week and the week before, uh, we've seen a huge amount of activity targeting cryptocurrencies uh, and you know their respective platforms and exchanges. Uh, one of the things we reported on this week was an, you know, an initial coin offering or an ICO exit scam. Um, and I think really, you know, this one could have been seen coming. So uh, for anyone out there who wants to invest in an ICO, my takeaway for the week is do your diligence or do your due diligence and do your homework. And Rose, final words from you? Look before you leap uh, when it comes to attribution or making assumptions about an attack. Just consider all of the factors that lead up to that. We've all seen those BBC cop dramas where there's rugged policeman pursues one person at the risk of all other leads. Don't be that. Don't be that policeman. That's my takeaway. Don't be that guy. Okay, thank you. That was great. Thank you, my guest this week, Rose. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a lovely weekend. And Sam, thanks for joining us again. Thank you. Yeah, have a great weekend. And many thanks from me. For more content and analysis from the Digital Shadows team, visit resources at digitalshadows.com. Thank you for listening.